Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams with products like Droplets, Spaces, Kubernetes, Load Balancers, Block Storage, and pre-built one-click apps. You can deploy, manage, and scale cloud applications faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Whether you're running one virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean makes managing your infrastructure way too easy. Get started for free with a $100 credit. Head to do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. Welcome to GoTime, a podcast featuring a diverse panel and special guests discussing cloud infrastructure, distributed systems, microservices, Kubernetes, Docker, oh, and also Go. We record live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. Join the community of Slack with us in real time during the show in the GoTime FM channel and go for Slack. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTime FM. Listen live at changelaw.com slash live or subscribe at changelaw.com slash GoTime. And now on to the show. Okay, welcome to GoTime. I'm Matt Raya. Today we're going to be talking about GoTo and the future of Go. So get into your little time machine. Uh, join us with a veritable cast of characters. We've got thinkers and tinkerers from around the Go community. I'm joined by Mark Bates, Jana B. Dogan, and Johnny Borsico. And before we get started, I just want to pay a quick tribute to the original Broadway musical cast of Go Time, Brian, Carlicia, and Eric, for setting such a great standard. And if we're going to fill those shoes, then, dear listener, we're going to need your help. So get involved, go for Slack, we're in the Go Time FM channel, or on Twitter at GoTimeFM, and we'd love to hear from you. And I'm going to kick things off by asking Mark Bates a question. Mark? Yes. Uh, if you had the power, which I don't, to change anything, which you definitely don't, <laughs> right. to change <laughs> to change anything in the Go language or in Go at all, what would you change? Uh, that's an excellent question. There's a there's a lot of answers I could give you. I mean, there's some stuff I want to take out, things like panic and stuff. But I was thinking about this today, totally unprompted, just assuming that I was going to be asked the very first question, and that being it. Uh, the, the answer I came up with was I'd love to see them extend uh, the ability to remove unnecessary typing of types. So, for example, when you're doing a, a slice of a type, right? You don't have to do the the type each time for each kind of entry in the slice. And I'd like to be able to see that other places. Like if I'm passing uh, like a slice of strings, for example, I'd love to be able to just do curlies and then the strings and have Go know that that is a slice of strings because what else would it be? Right. So cases where there's only one type it could possibly be, then maybe you can omit the type. Yeah. And they've done that in a few places already um, where you can omit the type. And it'd be really nice to see that further. You know, where we don't have to do that necessarily all the time. Because there's a lot of typing seems a little pointless and unnecessary. Uh, don't even get me started on wrapping strings in the slice of bite thing. That really annoys me, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, that's interesting. <laughs> there you go. I, I want to type less. Yes. So, lazy. Johnny, you're not lazy, are you? 
Uh, I have many things. Lazy um, has not been used to describe me yet. So how about you? Is there anything that you think you could get rid of in the language or something that you would like to see added? Um, honestly, I've, I've learned to love Go for what it is. I, I don't feel sort of a sort of like one way or the other. It's, I mean, sure, there are some things that I use currently in the current version of Go that I, I don't use as much. I, 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 don't, I don't think I've ever used GoTo, for example. Um, fall through doesn't come through a lot. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> um, and um, I mean, these things are useful to some um, and they find sort of excellent uses for them. But for me, I've learned to appreciate the language for what it is and for what it isn't at the same time. So along the lines of, you know, and go to what's coming up and what I could do without. Honestly, it's the whole generics thing where everybody sort of, you know, loses their cool when it comes to that. I've gotten by without it, right? Yeah, you have to type a little bit more and, and you have to kind of find some creative ways around that. But I don't know. I'm, I'm, I like the sort of uh, the stability of the language and, and not having sort of uh, to introduce features for the sake of introducing features. Again, there are folks that are going to feel differently and the folks that do see the value in that. And, and I do as well. But I, I like the stability of the language, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Actually, I, I tweeted an unpopular opinion recently, which said that I actually don't mind the if air doesn't equal nil everywhere. I've, I've kind of become used to that. And now I sort of expect to see it. And I can kind of spot where it's missing as well now, because I've been doing it for so long. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. What were you going to say, Mark? Uh, no, I, I just agree with Johnny. I don't need generics at all, either. I think they just complicate the language. I think we've all done really well uh, in languages that didn't have generics. I think we've all done really well in Go without generics. It's a little copy paste, but the language is cleaner, easier to understand, parse, work with, etc. I don't personally. I'm not a fan of generics. Is that an unpopular opinion? I seem to stop the show. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree with you. I, I've used Code Gen more than you know in those occasional times when I've come to do need something like that. Yeah. But I've always been able to get by without it so far. Uh, Jana, is there anything that you would see taken out? Or is it or what? I definitely have some opinions on this. Like, I think um, <laughs> some of them are more controversial. Oh, sorry. Um, oh, let's have those. For, <laughs> um, I think uh, these, like, I have really minor you know, requests such as um, I want to see some of the shadowing issues are made illegal. You know, that there's like some convenience. Um, Variable name, comma, error, error, uh, colon equals. It sometimes kind of allows you to like error, um, shadow errors. Mm. Uh, I want to like see some of them actually making more like uh, being more consistent rather than like us, uh, you know, allowing them to, to be shadowed. Um, I also don't like, you know, naked returns. I wish that like they were entirely gone. I really like to, you know, call out uh, the variable names when I'm returning things. Uh, people think that it's a little bit verbose, but, you know, we have some tools that actually like autofill some of those places. So um, I think it's not really worth to, you know, have this like second guess or make it so, you know, indirectional. Um, I wish that like, you know, we, we were more consistent with naked returns. Um, select statement is one of the other things that I wish that like we could have spent some more time on um, because it's doing a lot of random things and I wish that like there was some sort of like maybe a priority or something. Uh, a very typical case is um, I, you know, if my channel is closed, for example, I don't necessarily care much about like what else is going on in that select. Like there are some very common patterns and like it's just so hard to, you know, figure out the right pattern. 
uh, and use select in a you know easy way because select statement is really complicated. And I, if we have time, like I have some opinions on what packages I think we needs to be gone from 2.0. Um, a typical example of this is like the XVAR package. Uh, it's like a straight copy of the VARZ at Google. And I don't think that it's a really scalable approach. Like it uses, you know, global state, um, number of variables are growing really quickly. Uh, the output uh, the output format is human readable, but not necessarily like a good representation. Uh, um, doesn't really provide a good, you know, way to represent structured values. And it's really expensive to parse and format. So uh, I don't think it's worth it at all. And you know, there are some like packages that we want to get rid of, like the container packages, uh, the you know the RPC related package, which has been deprecated. Uh, Net HTTP also has like a lot of like you know organically grown features, and um, the response rider has some sort of like this like optional interfaces. If you think about like the initial HTTP package, you know even HTTP two was not around when it first came around, and um, over time it started to, you know, provide some features uh, through optionally um, implementing some of the interfaces that is added to the package at a later time. And I really want like 2.0 to kind of like clean that up uh, and make it easier for library makers, as well as the user um, as they're like engaging with the response writer. Yeah. Wow. That's, yeah. Like we just ditto everything JBD just said. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> 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 I, I gave one answer. She gave them all. I do have a question uh, around the XPVAR um, package, though. What, what would you would you replace that with anything, or you'd basically make that an external concern? I would say that like it's an external concern. I would rather you know libraries to expose the you know the vari- like the values of through APIs, and you know you just write the. Uh, you decide on the export format um, and you take the, you know, the, you read it from the library and then like convert it to whatever format. And then, you know, just like, I don't like Go is opinionated on this, to be honest. Hmm. Matt, what about you? No one's asked you the same question. Well, I actually would like to simplify. There are some things that there are multiple ways to do it in the language. So for example, you're going to like create an instance of a struct. You can do that with the new keyword. You can also just kind of do it literally and then start to set the fields and things. So anytime that there's two ways to do something, I always uh, would like to trim that fat a little bit. So I would probably drop the new keyword. Yeah, I would agree. I'm hearing a lot of uh, removals, not a lot of additions. So I think generally speaking, we'd like to see fewer things in Go, which is kind of interesting from a community outlook standpoint, right? Usually... You have folks asking for more things, more ways to do things. I think uh, by consensus here, most of us are are asking for fewer things. I think we might be a little bit biased. Um, you know, the the language has been very small for a long time, and we have this resistance. And um, I think people come into the language from like other languages in the first few years. They're looking for all these features, and they then they learn uh, not to look for them. And I mean, I'm I'm using Go for a long time now. Maybe you know, I'm a little bit biased. Yeah, me too. I can think of a few things that I'd like to add. If you're curious, um, if we want to talk about some things, because we've all talked about things we'd remove. What um, I'd be curious to hear what everybody would add. For example, I would love a true sync map implementation, uh, typed sync map implementation in the standard library. Uh, so instead of just doing like say map whatever, just do s map or something like that. 
Um, because right now the one that's all interface based is not that helpful. I totally agree. Because you're casting everywhere. I totally agree. Like I think Go is an overwhelmingly, you know, concurrency friendly language, but it doesn't give you a lot of like safe types. Concurrent data structures and safe yeah. types, yes. Yeah. And map is map is the worst in terms of concurrency. Like it's the number one bug. You know, when we teach concurrency, you know, to people, whatever, when I'm teaching, it's, you know, I always drill into their heads that maps are not thread safe because they're so 100 percent not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're the worst. And it'd be great if we had nice uh, concurrent implementations of slices, of, array, of arrays, of, and, you know, the set of the data types, the common data types, because having to sit there and put mutexes around everything is really annoying. Yeah, I totally agree. And, um, you know, the tr- tricky part is... Um, the you know the runtime is not giving you a lot of like you know it doesn't give you the identity of the go routine you can't really build these structures yourself in a you know efficient right. performant right. way so you really need to rely on uh, whatever is coming from uh, the you know the standard library and then standard library is not doing a good job in terms of you know having any of having any support uh, for the primitive data structures yeah that would be my biggest that and i would love to see a map not need to be initialized before being used yeah, I feel like that one should be quite low-hanging fruit, isn't it? Yeah. Why is that not? Well, it's a point because it, it's a pointer under the covers. That's what a, a map. The original I mean, JBD probably knows this too, right? The original implementation, you actually had to do the pointer on it, uh, and then they just yeah. kind of yeah. clean that up for everybody else. <laughs> but it, it's a pointer under the covers. It's nil. That's why. What other things would we have? Would we like to add? Them? Let's just get it sorted now, can we? <laughs> Get your laptops. Get our laptops. Uh, Johnny, what about you? Anything you'd like to see added? Actually, no. I <laughs> honestly, I mean, yeah, I, I hate to, you know, sort of be like a contrarian and, and sort of, you know, I, I like it just the way it is. I think from what I've sensed, from what I've seen, I think there's a, there's always pressure to, and being a programming language or being a product or service, whatever it is, there's always pressure, right, from the market, you know, quote unquote, to sort of um, to be adding new things, to be innovating, to be always trying to make something better. The next version will be, you know, will be better, faster, stronger. I mean, all these things. I really don't see that uh, that need uh, and go. And again, I'm not against innovation and I'm, and I'm sure there are ways that the language can evolve, can be made better to do some things that it does now to, to make them even better and more approachable. Absolutely. I mean, we've, we've identified a number of things that could be done better with the existing language. So I'm not saying that there are not, you know, better ways of doing things or introducing new things that make, you know, uh, more complicated things easier to do. My sense is that the need to introduce new features into the language because of market drivers is, for me, I tend to sort of have a have a negative view on that. That's just where I stand on that. Yeah, I think you're right. But there's nothing yeah, you would add. Right. <laughs> you wouldn't add like sync maps or anything, Johnny. Come on, there's got to be something. Well, in the sense that for a newcomer who doesn't quite know where the gotchas are, absolutely. I mean, I, I could definitely see ways of making certain constructs easier to sort of uh, wrap your head around and use them in the language. Absolutely. But, you know, again, you know, you, you identify the problem and you know how to get around it, right? So it's not like when you're coding now, you're still sort of, you know, banging your head against the table saying, oh, man, I wish we still had that. I wish we still had that. You can program around it. You can code around it. Hmm. So in that, in that sense, I would love to see uh, things that make complicated things easier in the language, right, be introduced. Not necessarily new concepts, new constructs, new new data types or, or anything like that. Just really making things easier for people to do the right thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How do, how do we feel about the errors proposal with the handler and the check and that stuff? 
I think there's like, um, if you, we are talking about adding stuff, I think error handling is one of the few places I would love to see an improvement. Um, I think, you know, the problems over there is just not the verbosity, but, um, you know, bubbling up, uh, we have this tendency to bubble up errors because there's no easy way to, you know, discover the error types. You know, we don't have like, for example, any analysis tools that can help us uh, to discover the types coming from the, you know, the previous call tree, right? Um, it's no, there's no stack frame if you do font error and wrap, like put, like not wrap things. So errors are definitely not in an ideal form at this point. And I really like like the fact that check is um, specifically like it, it looks like maybe it's specifically trying to solve the variables of the problem, but it might actually help us to create some of this like, you know, tools by intercepting every error, um, helping us to like write some dynamic analysis tools. Maybe it really depends on how much they're going to allow us to, you know, provide us like some APIs maybe to like, you know, to you know, diagnose what is going on, but um, I think it's an opportunity to us. You know, rethinking about error handling is a good opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I was reading the error spec earlier, and I don't know. There's a lot in there. I think might be too, just too much, just too many things. Uh, the biggest thing I've always had, like, I don't need check. Check doesn't really bother me. Like Matt said earlier, I think the, you know, if error does not equal nil thing has always worked for me. Uh, and I just kind of used to it. And if I really need to do, a, you know, in say a function, if I have multiple points where I need to do something, if there's an error, I just write a little, you know, anonymous function in line and just call that. Um, my own little check, basically. So I don't feel like I need any of that. What I really need is just a nice way to get a clean stack trace mm -hmm. from where the error was. That's where I want a stack trace that goes all the way back. Like, you know, we've tr been trying to use like uh, the errors, PKG errors package, and it's with stack kind of keeps adding on top of each other uh, and makes for these really kind of hard to read stack traces. So for me, all I really want is just something that gives me the stack trace. So probably you need the stack frame rather than the whole trace. Um, and, right. you know, you can reconstruct the, you know, the thing by just like looking at the stack frame. It's also like this is such a, you know, big issue um, if you are running things in production and we all do. Uh, you just want to, you know, collect errors in a way that you can analyze. Like you can, you may want to able to see, hey, where are the like the number of top reasons, top places that the errors are coming and like what are the some of the error patterns. And currently just because of font error F, we, we just kind of like, you know, lose the stack frame. It's it's not really nice if you want to analyze. So definitely it's something that I would love to be improved, but I've seen the proposal and it seems like it's covering a lot of things and yeah. exposing a lot of APIs and uh, it just looks like it's too much. That's exactly, I was reading it and there, there are a few things in there I couldn't even grasp. I'm like, what is this even for? <laughs> like, what problem is this thing solving? Uh, and there's a few of those. It's, I don't know if it's the best proposal I've ever seen. Yeah, but it's part of the conversation. The other, the mm. other thing that's a part of that conversation too about errors is it's very useful to know whether something is a temporary error, you know, whether you can retry it and it might work or whether this is a kind of, okay, stop the world, something's not going to recover, but at least this request is not going to ever be happy, so I have to go and tell the user something. All that stuff is just left up so far, really, for the application. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there might be something that we can do there around classes of errors and make but some really go kind of nice, elegant way of solving that problem, I think, would be quite interesting too. 
Mm-hmm. Not sure if having that as part of the standard library itself would be sort of the way to go, though. Um, I could I could definitely see like a community contributed package that actually does that, kind of provides the standard set of uh, error types that you could sort of integrate into your code if you need them. That's a great idea because you could do that today. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, I would otherwise, um, you know, maybe advocate something more for the error groups. It's a really common case, but, you know, you can always build stuff to support those cases with a, you know, third-party library. I'm not sure, like, if we should, you know, include more to the standard library or we should experiment more outside of the standard library. Mm. Well, one of the cool things about Go as a project is that it, it does engage with the community you can if you've got something to say about it you can write about it you can get involved and i know that they pay attention to it i was talking to one of the team recently in paris and they're very interested in in looking at particularly errors and and the, well, the packages like dave cheney's package there's a few others that have uh, they've, they've really taken part in that conversation that's the kind of something that i like to see just from a community point of view it sort of is it quite empowering This episode is brought to you by our friends at GoCD. GoCD is an open source continuous delivery server built by ThoughtWorks. Check them out at gocd.org or on GitHub at github.com slash gocd. GoCD provides continuous delivery out of the box with its built-in pipelines, advanced traceability, and value stream visualization. With GoCD, you can easily model, orchestrate, and visualize complex workflows from end to end with no problem. They support Kubernetes and modern infrastructure with elastic on-demand agents and cloud deployments. To learn more about GoCD, visit gocd.org slash changelog. It's free to use. They have professional support and enterprise add-ons available from ThoughtWorks. Once again, gocd.org slash changelog. In terms of tools, um, I was also thinking about like, you know, I, I think we are not doing a good job in terms of giving introspection tools, for example. Do you have any opinions on that? Um, do you think that like, what is the right approach? Um, you know, there are errors that you want to handle, transform into something else, or you can recover from. Then there are some errors, there's nothing else to do. Just the mad, you know, said like it's a stop the world type of error and all you can do is maybe log it. What do you think that, you know, our approach should be in terms of like providing more visibility? I think it's a great question. That means I don't have an answer. That's <laughs> secret code. That's secret code for that. Um, <laughs> I don't know, but for sure, in particularly in APIs, often you, it's very convenient as you're writing code to just, like you say, bubble the error up and it, you, it pops out the top and the developer can read it. But of course, you can leak kind of internals doing that. So you then do want to protect that to some extent. And some errors, it's okay for the users to see it. And some you'd rather not sort of airing your dirty laundry in public. There isn't really a simple way to, to say, for example, you know, here's a, this is the public message for this error. Yeah, that's not really answered the question, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk. I think this is a great segue to talking about panics because panics are really supposed to be that stop the world, like I got to yeah. get off kind of error, right? Um, yeah. I, it just like stops the entire process, right? Like I think there's something in between. I right? know, like, which is awful. <laughs> <laughs> there's something in between. <laughs> That's why I hate panic so much. <laughs> yeah, they're arrogant. It just 
stops everything. Uh, and it's maddening. Comics are really arrogant, aren't they? <laughs> they really are. They're like taking their ball home. It's like, no, I can't do my thing, so no one else is going to play too. I think Panic is this like specific thing. Hey, if I continue... It'll, it's going to mess up even like more crazily. Like I'm going to corrupt memory or something, right? Like it's not like, oh, I got an error and I don't know what to do and I should panic, right? Like it's just, I think there's like an error type which is in between. You don't have to stop the process, but there's nothing you can, you know, what are, you don't have much of a next action. And there's only one thing you can do is to log it, you know, report it to your error reporting analysis tool. Um, I was specifically more like talking about that case. And I don't know like, what is the best way to avoid panics. Like, would you rather see um, yourself like corrupt in memory rather than go panicking? Uh, that's a great question. I don't, I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> uh, it's just it's, you know, so working on a project like Buffalo, for example, where there's a lot of user kind of stuff happening, we have to really make sure that panics don't crash people's applications. Uh, and it's a real thing. Like the standard library panics in some very strange places, for example. Um, one of them being if you accidentally register a database driver twice, it panics, mm -hmm. uh, which can which can happen in, in a variety of cases, typically involving vendoring. But that's a whole nother issue, um, <laughs> which is going away, thankfully. So there are, you know, the standard library is doing it. You know, the standard library has this kind of uh, pattern of if you put the word must in front of it, it panics, mm -hmm. which, you know, I personally, again, I'm against panic. So I think that's a really bad uh, <laughs> approach. Like, give me an error version and let me shut down my app. Like, I don't know. So there's all yeah. there's stuff like that generally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you usually do have that option. And I think those must um, methods and, and functions. I think they came from before we knew that what panics really were and what they meant. So right. I think originally, yeah, there were errors and panics and probably you'd use them in different ways. And uh, it's only over time from writing code and deploying apps and doing real things, we've kind of realized panics, uh, they're not good. They are difficult. And yeah, we'd rather just have an error to deal with. Yeah, I'd love to be able to like so with the you know the check proposal for for errors, for example. I'd love something similar, but for panic, if we're going to keep panics, I'd love to be able to maybe at a package level say this is how I want to handle panics. Just because you said uh, package level, maybe you know the problem itself is like the global state and like you right. know everybody's interacting with each other and so on. I think library space in Go is generally uh, not really well, you know, contained. Um, everybody's leaking to each other's, you yeah. know, global state. Yeah, I don't care where it is. I just, it'd be nice to, I mean, I could do it at the top of every single function, um, but it, just, it feels like that's not the right place, you know? Um, I even have wrappers when I'm calling functions given to me that I that will capture the panics and return errors for me so that when users give me a function, if it panics, it won't crash everything. You know, so that I always feel like I'm constantly writing that sort of stuff. It sounds like also there's a it sounds like what you're asking for. Also, maybe some errors that are currently panics, right, should be treated as sort of like a no-op, right? For example, like registering a database driver like more than once. Like if it's already there, right. then just no-op, right? Just don't do anything. Don't don't crash the entire app because of that, right? <laughs> yeah. So Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, there and, and the other thing too, I mean, because of I also teach and and when I teach, especially those new to go, they kind of run into some errors that we as sort of veterans consider to be obvious. Like, for example, like, you know, basically index out of range error, right? If you're trying to right. iterate or access, you know, index from an array or slices that doesn't exist, 
then that's kind of panic. Sometimes they're surprised, like, ooh, like I didn't see that coming, right? So things like that. I'm, I mean, I'm not sure if there's a good way of sort of handling these kind of situations, but you know, perhaps there's a there's a softer way. There's something in between, like Yana's saying. Basically, there's you know, it, it's like it can't be all or nothing. Maybe there's something in between there. Right. Yeah, I, I don't have an answer. I just <laughs> voicing frustration. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's we could have uh, an error and we could have panics and we could just have like a small anxiety that just gets returned. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm okay. You're mildly frustrated. <laughs> but just give me a bit of <laughs> like emotional errors. <laughs> oh mate, they're all emotional to me when I'm writing code. Uh so what about the context as well? Someone asked on Slack. It's very common now to see code where context is passed throughout the entire package. Mm. Is that something that we'd like to see implicit? As in you not passing in the context with every call down the chain? Yeah, but you can still reference do it. the same things that context gives you, yeah. Ooh, my spider sense is tingling. I don't know why yet. <laughs> How would that even look in code? Implicit? Uh, contexts yeah like i just i don't know like how would you define this is the context i want to use going forward uh, just imagine an api call that like you say like context get current whatever and then it ret returns you don't have to like explicitly pass it around yeah but how do i set the current context you can't really engage with the context in that case, probably. Like, what you can do mm -hmm. is to set the values uh, by, you know, getting the current context, probably. Like, it depends on the API design, of course, but uh, assume that there is a context always around and you can engage it with, the, with some APIs, some getters, setters. Yeah, but if I can't then set, say, a new context for this Go routine or... You could. You probably could set the context when you call the Go routine or when you call a function or something. Right. I don't know. You probably have to, you? Yeah, I mean, it's it's if it's not a one oh one type of real um, situation, like each Go routine gets only one context. Uh, usually, you can derive you know contexts from contexts, and you know you can just set a new context. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'm for it. I would need to see a proposal. <laughs> I like the explicitness of it. I just don't like that. Like, I mean, it has to be everywhere. If it needs to be everywhere. Maybe it doesn't have to be explicit, but it's also nice because every like you you are it's visibly there. You know that it actually takes a context, and you need to do something about that context, right? Like, right. But for people who don't doesn't necessarily care about the context, maybe it's a little bit too much. Yeah, well, I suppose you'd be able to ignore it always. You wouldn't even know it's there if you didn't need it, if it was implicit. But I think, um, yeah, I mean, from people who are coming to go, um, you know, they're primary questions like hey what is context like it's everywhere i've never seen it in other languages as such a fundamentally visible you know primitive yep. maybe they're like familiar with context or not uh it's, i think it's just too visible in go um you need to explain them the, the you know the story and the context and why it's useful and so on and uh, they learn not to see it if they don't need it they know that they need to propagate it. I think propagation is a little bit like uh, the other concern. Um, it's not automatic. So you need to you know, mm -hmm. pass it explicitly. And like lots of the newcomers don't know much about you know, these concepts and right. they end up like breaking the chain sometimes. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, and, and when I explain the context package and, you know, context propagation, I usually basically have to take a couple steps back first and say, okay, well, this is what context propagation is. This is why it's useful, why you'd use it. Now this is how it's actually done in Go. So it's like, a, there's two things there. There's two fundamental concepts that must be introduced for somebody to understand even how to use it properly and what it is. Mm. Mm -hmm. There's also a real um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, in the standard library, they're not using it the same way all over the place. Uh, and it's really kind of frustrating. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, in the exec package, uh, there's exec uh, command context, which takes a context and creates a command. Yet there is no way to get back the context on that command. It's a private, unexported field. But in request, you can. On HTTP request, you can get access to it. So there's lots of places where it's just, you know, it's not consistent. And I think maybe formalizing or con making it more consistent would help a lot of problems. True. And it's also like uh, the context, you know, added to the standard library at a later time. So right. it doesn't even like follow the best practices, right? Uh, the context package itself says like, uh, use this as the first argument of a function call, never pin it. And, you know, if you take a look at the HTTP package, request as a, you know, uh, context uh, as a field because they couldn't break the APIs. They had it had to like put the context somewhere and then they made it a field. So right. all of this like organically, you know, grown features is just like making it very complicated for people coming to the language for the first time. I'm yeah. not sure if any, any of this is going to be different in 2.0. Well, there is an opportunity to potentially clean up some of that stuff. Like you say, context is one. It was added quite late and I know that they didn't like the design when they had those methods in the request. Mm -hmm. They wished that they were, it was just passing as an argument to the do and the get and the post. So what, moving, shifting gears very slightly, which areas of Go do we feel like we haven't really explored the full potential yet? Or which areas of tech could Go move into and, and make a bit of an impact? I know that initially Go wasn't really awesome for building websites and things it was but of course mark maybe for those that don't know about the buffalo package you could just tell us briefly what that is oh well uh, the, the tagline basically is it's rails for go <laughs> <laughs> i'm not going to pretend that it's anything more than that you know it for for me it was solving a it solves a couple problems one is i need to just knock stuff out very quickly and i don't want to deal with folder layouts and i don't want to deal with how do i deal with sessions and templates and this and that and the other thing and cookies or whatever like i just kind of get all that by default with with uh, buffalo but the standard library definitely misses a few pieces when it comes to web it definitely got a lot right but then there are some pieces um where it definitely could do with being improved and one of the big examples that everybody talks about is a much better router the current router is really kind of it's very very weak the muxer is really weak you can't really build decent uh restful apis on it without doing a bunch of case and switch statements and yada 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 to check verbs and stuff like that um so that would be the big place where i think uh web wise that it's really missing um is just as a much much better router because we all have to go to these third-party routers you know i hear everybody talk about oh i use the standard library but i use gorilla mox <laughs> and it's like well you're not using the standard library anymore <laughs> right and it's like well i don't use this i use the standard library but with the http router like, again, you're no longer just using the standard library. You have to pull in a better router. Uh, and there's a bunch of those packages uh, for sessions and stuff like that that we're just kind of missing or are only halfway implemented, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, would you say, wouldn't you say, though, that these, these kinds of sort of uh, uses of the language, right, to create these kinds of frameworks and whatnot, these are mm -hmm. things that are, I would argue, are better suited uh, um, for the community to provide these things, right? So in Go, you you get the bare bones, you get the sort of the building block, right? It's, it's up to you to kind of add, because, you know, obviously these things sort of tend to tend to be opinionated, right? So how right. you assemble a web framework, how you do routing, how you, you know, store things like, you know, models and, and how you interact with databases, these are choices that you're making. These are part of your design. Mm -hmm. So if, if 
the standard library is then sort of taking that choice away really from engineers, I'd argue that that's kind of overstepping its bounds as, as a language. I don't think improving the current router is taking away anything from anybody because uh, um, you can still obviously have your own third party routers. I mean, obviously, I'm somebody who doesn't believe that I completely agree with you. I think the standard library is about building blocks um, for library maintainers, such as uh, those who maintain tools like Buffalo and other uh, frameworks and, you know, Gorilla Mox and all those things like that. I completely 100 percent agree. And the Go team also agrees. I've had long conversations with members of them where they say these packages are meant as building blocks. The problem really becomes in that we've somehow gotten to this culture where if you use anything other than the standard library, you're doing it wrong. And I see that all the time. I see people getting very adamant. You're like, only use the standard library. And it's like, well, it's not for everybody. And it's the building blocks. And I could use the standard library in Ruby, too, to, to build a web app. But I had Rails, <laughs> which made it a lot nicer. Sinatra. And the same thing in Java and every other language that has a web standard library. Uh, you know. I just think the router that is there is really weak. And there are times when I do want to just use a standard library for smaller things. And that router just isn't enough to make it work. Uh, and I still have to bring a third party router. I think the confusion started because, you know, Go was a batteries included, like it's perceived as a batteries included language or standard library. And um, there was this culture of like relying only on the standard library building blocks and rather than like, you know, just like building more abstractions, um, especially for like, you know, typical things like the HTTP layers or, um, you know, some encoders, decoders, like, you know, the JSON pa package. And um, I think we are suffering from that like initial culture uh, because mm -hmm. we expected a lot from the standard library. Because to be fair, if you compare 10 years ago, uh, this was the only standard library with a good HTTP package and a JSON library, right? Like, so right. Um, I, I think like, you know, originally speaking like that is coming from there, but we need to just pass it and, you know, realize the truth. And I think the team kind of like got to that point. Um, we need to keep the standard library as a building block and, you know, let people build on top. Yeah, agreed. So you don't have to just use the standard library. <laughs> yes. Did you hear that, everybody? You don't have to just use the standard library. It's okay. <laughs> it's okay to pull in some other packages. It really, especially with modules now, it does make right. that a lot easier. Going back to the original question, uh, you know, Matt asked. I think you know it's really hard to use Go when your problem has like a lot of business logic. Um, I was having this conversation, you know, on a couple of times that like my background is actually um, at smaller companies where, you know, the problems are ambiguous, um, our abstraction changes all the time. But we were trying to like, as we are, you know, tweaking our abstractions and so on, we still try to keep things simple. But there was this like cost of like, you know, organic growth in terms of, you know, because the problem evolves over time, mm. your design evolves over time. and um, Go type system is really small. It's really super nice if you have like a lot of confidence in, in your types. And, you know, this is great for writing, you know, networking servers or like, you know, writing net, implementing a networking stack because most of the time everything is well-defined and so on. But it's not just really, really good for like areas uh, where things are could be a little bit like in flux, uh, may require more design. You still need some sort of flexibility. You're still trying to keep things under control, but you know, you're not like you need to just 
tweak your design as you go. I've worked on a lot of like, you know, big rule engines, message message parsing systems, and I would probably not use Go um, for those type of problems where I needed flexibility. So I'm not like super, you know, opinionated against generics because um, I see some, we are actually like Go is disabling some of the use cases by not providing that level of flexibility. I have to say to piggyback on that, I, I do miss on occasion the flexibility that Ruby offered me for unstructured kind of data, mm-hmm. you know, where you could just kind of pull in whatever and it's just kind of there mm-hmm. and you can work with it. Um, which is a lot harder to do in Go. I, I completely agree. But I also really love the type safety in Go too. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, not exactly eager to rush back to the dynamic world of Ruby. But it, there are times. Trade-offs. Trade-offs, exactly. Yeah. You know, um, I'm willing to to let go of the that a little bit, but. I don't have that problem set. Yeah, I don't. I'm not an advocate. I'm not like, you know, here encouraging people to go and use, you know, uh, dynamic type systems. It's more of like, yeah, maybe it could be a little bit better. Like, I mean, I'm probably biased because um, I'm coming from JVM world and it's also not a world that I suggest. Like, it's not, I think it's a very bloated world compared to Go. So I don't want us to like go and like end up being there because there's already such a world, right? Like Mm. you use Java if you need that type of language. But yeah, I mean, this is just like uh, one of the use cases I would rather use a different language rather than using Go. Right tool for the right job. Yes. And speaking of other languages, are there any things that we'd like to steal from those other languages to bring into Go? We're talking about the future. That's a really good question. I really don't like centralized systems, but I wish that we had a central package manager, like a metadata service, and maybe we can build more tools around it. Hmm. It's kind of like hard to... Isn't that what Athens is trying to be? Athens is also more like... Yeah, exactly. Athens is also more of like a proxy. So you can, um, as a, for example, organization, you can run your Athens instance, but it's also aware of the central Athens it's a really good model and you know sort of like having this like metadata somewhere uh stored kind of is going to enable everybody to write tools around it and like i think it will make maintenance much easier for the library owners it probably will be easier to just query like who is depending on what like what you know restrictions they have in terms of versioning and so on so i'm really excited about athens yeah me too i think a lot of people are but what we're talking about modules can we talk about how we really need versioned binaries in modules explain we want to talk about adding things so modules give us the ability to version packages um, but what about the binaries that are associated with some of these things so uh, an example would obviously be something like a like buffalo where you know, I've got a, an app that's on an older version of Buffalo. I want to also have a binary that matches that. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And not, say, yeah, I mean, use definitely. the later. Like, uh, you know, you might have, like, Buffalo is, what, 14.2 right now? And that generates a lot different code than, say, 12 did, right, version 12. But if your app is on version 12 and you're using the binary from 14, you're going to get this random code that may not compile in your application or work correctly in your application. So it'd be nice to be able to say, I'm in this module, use this, you know, use a binary that matches my, whatever I have in my module file. So I have a, you know, you get your requirements, maybe have a, a bins down the bottom where you can add, you know, Buffalo add 14.2 and then, I don't know, you'd call go exec Buffalo, for example, kind of like bundler does. You do bundler exec rails And that runs a very particular version of Rails that's from your gem file, which is kind of their, you know, their 
package management system in, in the Ruby world. Um, so that would run the correct version of Rails for your project. And I'd love to be able to see Go exec XYZ where you could do the same thing. But this is not like specific to like Go binaries, right? Like, I mean, it's a problem generally. Yeah, we've got it in other language, but I'm saying like, so Rails does that where you've got, or Ruby does that with Bundler where you can have your, your binaries are technically versioned uh, if you call them through bundle exec. Um, and I'd love to have that kind of in my mod file where it'll use the right binaries if I do go exec. What does your current make files look like? Is it like, um, is it directly dependent on, I mean, I, I say make files, I'm sorry, because <laughs> if it's such a, you know, huge workflow, I assume that you need to represent it in a, you know, bash script or something. Well, well no, I just use gopath <laughs> slash bin. Okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, my make files are currently littered with Go mod tidy, but that's another thing for another time. Like you got to run Go mod tidy at the end of every single Go command. Uh, but that's another thing altogether. But I'd, like I said, I'd love to be able to say Go exec foo and have it run foo at whatever version is listed inside my mod mm -hmm. file. Would you rather, um, you know, the binaries are named after their versions? Like, for example, um, you know, Buffalo one point whatever being the binary name maybe um still in the bin directory under gopath or whatever well, <laughs> i mean so the, here's the thing like the gopath is going away but yeah. i haven't heard anybody tell me where the binaries are going to go mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no one's really talked about what happens when you go <laughs> do go install where do they go yeah i mean so we're kind of open for <laughs> change there you know for, personally i'd love to see them go somewhere in your path so people don't have to add go path bin to their existing path already uh because we get that one in buffalo a lot it's like i installed it but i can't find the command and it's like well did you add go path bin and they're like oh i didn't know you had to it's like well yeah, you do. <laughs> um, and so it's a, you know, it's a real problem with Go. And I see it and I'm sure Johnny sees it when he's teaching people and Matt too. Like you see it all the time in classes. They don't have GoPath bin added. Mm -hmm. So so first, yes, I would love to see bins go somewhere where they are useful without actually without having another step of setting up your environment further. But I'd also like to said, you know, maybe we could do kind of like, you know, you could see like, you know, Buffalo at v0114 buffalo adds v0 14.1 whatever it is and when you do go exec buffalo it runs the right version from your mod file wherever those files are that would be how i would like to see it done and maybe you get like a sim link to whatever the latest version is or something like that so if you just went buffalo you get the latest version and i'm using obviously buffalo as an example it can be anything buffalo <laughs> <laughs> so which of you did the survey the user survey I do it every year. I do it every year, yeah. I did. Yeah, I do it every year. Excellent. And I wonder how many of our listeners do. Well, did you read it? Did you see the results? I saw the highlights, which were mm -hmm. actually quite interesting to, to look at. This year, there were about 100 countries, 103 countries uh, um, participating and with well over 5,800 survey respondents. So it was it was much larger scale than it, than it has been in previous years. So yeah, it was it, it has been an interesting read. Yeah, I didn't even know there were 103 countries. <laughs> I'm joking. You clearly haven't hung around my kids long enough. <laughs> Wait. From lots of different Country. Aren't you in the UK? Aren't, don't you have a little something going on right now called a uh, uh, what was it? What was it? Brexit? Uh, no. You be familiar with? <laughs> I, don't I don't know what you mean. Yeah, you, you don't want to be bringing that one up right now, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> Too soon. <laughs> no, to not go. soon enough. <laughs>
This episode is brought to you by O'Reilly Velocity Conference in San Jose, California, June 10th through June 13th. To get ahead today, your organization needs to be cloud native, and O'Reilly Velocity Conference covers everything from Kubernetes and site reliability engineering to observability and performance to give you a comprehensive understanding of applications and services and stay on top of the rapidly changing cloud landscape. They have amazing training, amazing speakers, and of course, an amazing community. Hear from industry leaders like Lena Hall, Julie Horvath, Liz Fong Jones, Emily Freeman, and more. Learn new skills, approaches, and technologies and get expert insights and essential training on critical topics like chaos engineering, cloud native systems, emerging tech, serverless, production engineering, and of course, Kubernetes. Learn more and register at velocityconf.com CA. Again, it's in San Jose, California, June 10th through June 13th. Plus, our listeners get 20% off bronze, silver, and gold passes when you use the code GOTIME20. Again, velocityconf.com CA, or check the show notes for details. For the survey, some of the things that I found interesting, because when I when I sort of looked through it and to find things that were particularly relevant to me in, in my line of work, I saw a lot of uh, um, basically the the most common use of Go was building you know API and RPC ser- services um, and also building CLI tools. So a lot of people are building pretty much whenever it is a new project that comes along that requires that type of uh, um, um, use. Go is is becoming more and more sort of the go to tool for that. That kind of didn't surprise me at all because I think from the very first time Go was introduced, it was sort of a position as sort of the the language for the cloud, the language for building these types of services, these types of networked programs. So that kind of didn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Let's be honest, yeah. writing CLI tools in Go is awesome. Mm-hmm. It's really yeah. Good. You have a static binary. That's awesome, right? It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> it's so much nicer than any other language I've ever used to do it. Yeah, the startup time is really fast. It's just awesome. Yeah, yeah, it wins at command line tools. But also, I mean, I, I learned Go. I built something. I wanted to build something for App Engine back in the day. And there were three language options. It was either Java, Java, Python, or Go. And it had, it's just had this weird little like EXP badge on it which is, I'm like a magpie when I see little experimental things shining on the other side, so I go and collect them. Uh, so I, that's how I started getting into Go. I wanted to build APIs, and it was it just had everything I needed, even with the router comes built in, uh, which I agree isn't as powerful as it could be, but even with just that and the JSON stuff and the fact that the Ghost, the, the servers, that they're just so quick. Like And, mm. you know, it just, I learned later, each request gets its own Go routine, so you kind mm-hmm. of have concurrency going on for free without even realizing when you start building APIs. I think we all tried at at very, very beginning to to launch every request in a Go routine and failed. At least (laughs) I did. Like day one, I was like, oh, sweet. I'm going to throw all these in Go routines. And I'm like, why aren't they working? Oh, they're already in Go routines. (laughs) Ah. uh, The funny story is actually the the initial Go app engine implementation didn't really provide concurrency. There was like an event loop. You couldn't really realize that was the case because, you know, they were able to hide it in a way that like users cannot recognize, but there was actually an event loop. The new runtime is supporting full concurrency. So so that's really good news. But like, yeah, it's just, it was different than the actual runtime. 
going back to the like App Engine case, I think if you looked at other language supports, there was always like since App Engine is a sandbox environment as well as like have so so much runtime restrictions. It was you know there was a lot of complexity figuring out what framework to use, like what libraries is supported on App Engine for other language runtimes. But I think Go just you know, worked the standard library at least work. And so, since the standard library had a lot of things, you know, batteries included, um, it was so much easier to, you know, get started and be productive with Go on, on App Engine. Yeah, absolutely. I actually have little things that I've built that are still running. I go to it and it's still there and it, I haven't touched it for years, literally. Wow. Uh, yeah. I think we send out like some emails. Hey, if you're using a very old version of App, uh, Go, please just migrate or something <laughs> because uh, <laughs> we wanted to stop supporting 1.6 a long time ago, but we couldn't because there were so many users and like, you know what happened? Um, we introduced, you know, the context package and like all the APIs got broken and so on. And like, and for a long time, Google had to support context package coming from the net package. Oh, yeah, that's right. Just because uh, we can't really break people. That, that was really annoying. The switch from X slash context to just context did really bite a lot of people. Yes. That was frustrating. Wait, and didn't like, uh, GoFix uh, help with that? So, like, I mean, lots of people just didn't want to touch their existing deployments. Uh, so they would have, like, you know, uh, their existing stuff relying on mm. the older APIs. And um, we couldn't break. And that's how all this, like, aliases and everything actually, like, you know, came around because we couldn't break and migrate people. There are lots of people who are not, like, catching up with the latest versions, especially in, like, cases where projects are hobby projects or it's like a super large company or a kind of like an enterprise company that like deploys one particular solution and like never touches it for 10 years it's really you know hard to go and like tell people like hey you need to rebuild you need to make sure that it's working with the new version and you know push it even if you you know enforce security releases and so on like some people don't care no it's true we see that in corporate environments all the time yeah. You know, companies yep. still using 1.8, 1.7, because that's what they build their app on. They have a whole process that you have to go through to clear new versions through, you know, AppSec or whatever they need to do. And so most of them just stay on the version that got cleared through <laughs> their lawyers and security team. And that's it. And sometimes like if you're deploying to a customer, for example, you know, they need to pay you more because you're doing some extra work, right? Like, so it's not that easy to say hey, I just need to rebuild this and we need to redeploy. The way the contracts work for software as a you know service type of situations is just really complicated. So another highlight, which is kind of near and dear to my heart, and I think also for everybody on the panel here, uh, is that uh, most folks, most respondents to the survey, they said they, were, they felt welcome in the Go community. Um, and basically they thought that the, um, the community was sort of making it easier for newcomers to onboard, to, to sort of join and be part of the community, feel like feeling like they can, they can communicate you know, with folks and they can um, ask for help and not feel like they're gonna get sort of a beat back or, or not feel silly for asking you know, um, questions so I think that's that's a pretty big deal because not many communities are like that. Uh, a lot of the communities these days are sort of trying to come more sort of a, um, friendly, uh, more sort of a newcomer friendly. But I think that's something the Go community got right from the get, basically trying to be more welcoming to people from all backgrounds. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah, I think so. They did make a concerted effort in the beginning, I think. I noticed it, which is another thing that pulled me in a bit. 
I noticed that there was a focus around having diverse teams and having diverse communities, and they saw the value in that. And so it's kind of like it's a no-brainer in the Go community, which is why I always say at my talks, if you know, if you're weird, then come to the Go community. <laughs> this is where all the weird people get together and make cool things. We're weird too. <laughs> Exactly. I would never imagine myself being a you know participant of a language community. Like you know, it was always like, oh, these are programming language people. I should probably stay away. Uh, Go was very different. That's why it's like I think the first programming language community. I feel like I'm kind of like a part of it, right? Right. Oh, that's great. Yeah, we're all people first. We just happen to you know love the same language, so you know we can't lose sight of that. Yeah. Well, also, I've been I've noticed any dev team that I've been on. The ones that have had the most diverse group that tends to be the best team, just because different perspectives. And you know, we're building software for humans mostly, or at some point, a human is going to probably interact with it. So having all those different perspectives on the team, I think that's what's happening. Where we, that's why it's so valuable. So yeah, and the Go community just makes that a, a no-brainer, which I like. And of course, because Go is growing so quickly. Most people that we encounter are going to be new. You know, we're really growing rapidly. So it's, I think I like that focus too. And I always, I try and only really do talks for the beginners because I think, you know, the experts are taking look after themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What, am I a beginner? <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I like the fact that like, well, we can ask questions to each other and like we can challenge, right? Like that's really important. And I think we are respectful to each other and I think everybody understands that um, there are, there will be differences in terms of like, you know, priorities and in terms of like personal opinions, but it's really nice uh, that we can have a conversation regardless of the topic. Yeah, it's going well so far. The first episode back, what do you think? Uh, yeah, is it? It's not supposed to get meta. <laughs> yeah, I think it's going well. It's going well. I love all the dead air. Yeah, well, don't, don't be afraid of it. And that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Adam, Adam will catch it in post. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm specifically happy that like we haven't recorded this show on April 1st with this particular crew. So I kind of felt safe. <laughs> oh, you're always safe with us. You know that. Although I think I made you pee once on a trip, a bus trip in Iceland, which I do apologize. Yeah, well, oh, wow. Details. Details. <laughs> I had Yana laughing pretty hard. Oops. <laughs> I'm pretty sure at one point she might appear. <laughs> oh, those are the days. What were you doing, Mark? Playing some of your music. Oh! Oh, wow. Snap. That, that. That's com comedy. It's just comedy pop. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> oh, we got to keep that. We got to keep that in the final cut. Oh, please. <laughs> There's tons of people out there with making fun of me. You, you don't need any extras. Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, this has been uh, a great first episode, I think. The key thing that I took from this was the fact that we actually think Go's doing quite well. And uh, <laughs> and we like some of the decisions that they've made. It wasn't a, a great deal that we wanted to add to it, but really just more about refinement and finding small improvements and things that, along the way. Thanks so much for my panel, uh, Mark, Jana and Johnny. It's been emotional. And that's our show this week. Uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. Thanks. See you. Thanks for tuning in. 
All right, that is the first show back for Go Time. I'm so excited to have this show back. It's been so much work behind the scenes, but it's definitely paying off now. And it's so much fun producing this show. We had so many people listening live for the very first show back. So thank you so much for that. We love you. And if you're not yet, hang with us in Go for Slack. We have a channel called Go Time FM. Look it up. You'll find us. Chat with the community, share stories, share coffee recipes, whatever. It's a lot of fun. Also, we have discussions on every single episode at changelaw.com. So head to changelaw.com slash go time. Find this episode and discuss it with the community. Of course, thank you to our sponsors, DigitalOcean, Velocity Conference from O'Reilly, and also GoCD. Huge thanks to Fastly for being our bandwidth partner. Head to fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast and fix things right here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com slash changelog. And we're hosted on Leno Cloud Servers at leno.com slash changelog. Our music is by the one and only Brave Master Cylinder. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to our master feed at changelog.com slash master or go to your podcast app and search for ChangeLog Master. You'll find it. Subscribe. Get all of our shows in one single feed as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Because you've stuck in here to the end of this show, we got a special surprise for you. This is a preview of our new upcoming show called Brain Science. This podcast is for the curious. We explore the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and the complexities of the human condition. It's hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and my good friend, Muriel Reese, a doctor in clinical psychology. It's about brain science applied, not just how the brain works, but how we apply what we know about the brain to better our lives. Here we go. So where do we begin to understand the mind? Humans have brains with all this neural activity. And I'm just thinking about what I know about my brain. I understand that it's up there, what it is. I understand it's very important to me. And without it, I couldn't function. But, you know, my mind isn't my brain's activity. How can we begin to break down the brain and the mind to really understand the operations behind our mind? Well, one of the things that is really important when we're looking at the brain and the mind is actually the words that we use to describe different things. And so I think it's really important to be as clear as possible. And so I think we want to differentiate the brain from the mind. And so the brain is made up of different structures. And then the mind is sort of the inner workings of the physical structures, which is not observable. But when we're looking at the brain, there are some primary structures that are fundamental to being human. And that involves sort of three different brains. Well, we have the brainstem, the limbic brain, and the prefrontal cortex. I know it might get a little heady mm-hmm. in talking about some of these things, but <laughs> I think it's helpful when we can have a visual. So if you put your right hand up in the air, like you're being sworn in with all five fingers next to right, each other, go ahead up. and f- okay, fold your thumb across the palm of your hand and then close your four fingers over the top of your thumb. Okay, I got that. And so in order to correlate these with different structures, your wrist would be synonymous with your brainstem, which is the reptile brain. Then your thumb is the 
limbic brain or mammalian brain, which means all mammals have that part of the brain. And then your four fingers are what we refer to as the frontal lobe or part of the prefrontal cortex. Okay, so we sort of have three brains in one and all do different things in our brain to help us be able to live and move and be safe. So if we have three brains in one, they all have their different roles. It sounds like, you know, the reptilian seems, I don't know, like it can't think very well. When it comes to the reptilian brain, I'm assuming it's just sort of like, you know, gut reactions, you know, very, very quick thinking, you know, almost subconscious kind of stuff potentially. Is that right? Yeah, you're spot on. Sometimes I think, again, it's helpful to parallel things with what we do know and do understand. So thinking of different animals, um, reptiles, right? Lizards, turtles. So the brainstem is really only responsible for these key functions within the body. So breathing, heart rate, the essentials, and, and fight or flight. If uh, a lizard is afraid, right, it needs to figure out what it needs to do to survive. So the brainstem is just preoccupied with the function of survival. How do I not die? And then if we move up to that mammal brain, right, we can think about, you know, cats or dogs, bats. And that mammal brain or limbic brain is really the feeling center of our brain. There's two key brain structures as part of that. And that is involves the amygdala and the hippocampus, which is responsible for memory. The one thing I think is super fascinating about the mammal brain is really the way in which we bank memories. Whenever things have the most emotion associated with it, we're more likely to remember that. Okay, so it doesn't matter whether it's positive or negative. So be it a wedding, birth of a child, you know, or something super traumatic. Our brain goes, oh, that's so important to remember. It vacuum seals it so that we hold on to that. And so this is why. Two, our lives have different meaning and being able to, to feel is a fundamental part of being human. The mammal brain is really the feeling center. So as opposed to more of the fight or flight from the reptile brain, our mammal brains, they're still more of an unconscious, subconscious things. But imagine that the Dewey Decimal System of your brain sorts things according to feelings when we're mammals. That's a preview of Brain Science. If you love where we're going with this, send us an email to get on the list to be notified the very moment this show gets released. Email us at editors at changelaw.com. In the subject line, put in all caps, Brain Science, with a couple bangs if you're really excited. You can also subscribe to our master feed to get all of our shows in one single feed. Head to changelaw.com slash master or search in your podcast app for Change All Master. You'll find it. Subscribe, get all of our shows, and even those that only hit the master feed. Again, changelaw.com slash master. to be remembered for my gourmet line of frozen seafood dinners.